0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And I have quite a little queue building up, so thank you very much for all the questions that you guys have been sending in. Please do continue to do so and be patient with me as I get to them. I realize it might take weeks or even months for me to get to your questions and I do apologize for that. I'm doing the best I can in, rid- in racing through these things. And I will remind everyone that my Patreon supporters are the ones whose questions go to the top of the queue. I think that's only fair and how I've been doing this for a very long time. So, for example, today, most of the questions that will be answered are from my Patreon supporters, but I've gotten a, I've gotten a few others in there as well. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. I hope you guys will check out my podcast this week with Dr. Jonas Kaplan about the marriage of science of of machinery and our brains, and if and that is, of course, a hundred percent on my uh, you know what I'm interested in and talking about, and I hope you guys will uh, check it out as well. We made some pretty interesting points and talked about some future possibilities and and had some fun with that. So anyway, you guys can check that out. And our critical conversation show this week covered the subject of love and how love applies. You know, in cults, we talked a lot about that, and actually had quite a bit of fun with that. had had some interesting um, back and forth with a caller, and um, would love to get more viewers and callers on that show. I hope you guys can check that out Friday nights at six o'clock. All right, so that's kind of where things are at with my channel right now. Probably going to stay on that kind of a schedule for a while. If you're not aware, uh, there is also a Critical Clips channel that I have, which is a separate YouTube channel that just has short clips extracted from mostly my Q&A videos of the past, but also my podcasts and other videos that I've created. I'm just chronologically going through them and pulling out snippets or answers to questions and putting those out with the video title being very clearly what that question or, or topic is. And those are short videos, anywhere from two, three minutes to 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I think the longest one's about 20 20 minutes or so. So another channel that you could subscribe to to get more content that posts Monday through Friday. So seven days a week, you can get content from me uh, right here. So anyway, just uh, putting all that out there. Let's go ahead and get to your questions now. We've got some good ones this week. Kevin Zay. Why is it that some people have such a grave misunderstanding regarding how paper and cloth masks are designed to work? I can't tell you how many times I've had to explain that these types of masks were designed to keep the wearer from slinging spittle as far as possible without them, and not to protect the wearer from becoming infected. Even then, most still don't get it. Is this a big case of cognitive dissonance, or are there other factors also at play? Thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, And apparently what we're hearing from research uh, released this week, it might well be that the protection goes actually both ways. Uh, So wouldn't that be even more interesting here? But clearly we know that masks are about protecting other people from your emissions, so to speak, I think is the primary focus of what those things are about Um, And you can make a lot of assumptions real quick, and a lot of people do, uh, have a lot of hot takes on why it is that people are not willing to wear masks, not willing to go out with their faces covered, or not paying attention to safety protocols or guidelines, don't care what Dr. Fauci says, don't care about the health protocols or any of that, they just don't care, right? And what's all that about? Well, there's a lot of things at play there. Uh, everything from American independence, the independent attitude, uh, the rugged individualism of the uh, of the you know the, the the core American spirit is at play there. And some people take that to a level of um, you know patriotic pride that exceeds any kind of common sense. We are certainly seeing a lot of that. There are people who are of a kind of libertarian nature, I guess you could say, or who get into sort of an anti. Well, the anti-science thing is sort of a is related, but um, but really that spirit of independence and attitude, and my body is my thing, and I will do what I will with it, and there's nothing you're going to say about it, is a um, it's a fascinating argument because it happens to be the exact same argument that is used by the pro, no, I should say, um, I shouldn't say pro-abortion, but I should say pro-choice crowd. Uh, which is, of course, logic I agree with. It's an argument that I I agree with, but it's actually the same logic, my body, my temple, my, my choice. The problem, of course, with that logic being applied in this case is that it's not something that just affects you. When you are a spreader of a viral infection, then you are endangering the lives of other people. In fact, every single person you come in contact with And that is the difference between uh, the abortion argument and the mask argument. So no false equivalencies here. I'm just saying the logic is very similar there. There are a lot of other factors at play here, too. There have been pushbacks against science as an institution. um, Well, from the beginning of the pandemic, that has certainly been the case. But this is really a long-term problem. And um, I've sort of thought that it's not necessarily an anti- authority stance or an anti-intellectualism stance, although there is certainly, you know, elements of that, because it's more of these people buy into other different authority figures who tell them that those authority figures are wrong, right? Dr. Fauci is wrong and all these people, you know, prattling on at a mad rate about how infectious diseases work and how my rights have to be impinged upon in order for the country to be safe. Those people don't know what they're talking about. They don't have a clue. Well, underneath that and underneath the logic of the my body, my choice argument and underneath all of this stuff, um, in broad terms, you're going to find emotional needs again. And I'm going to keep coming back to that phrase because it's it's kind of a good catch-all. Um, you know, we even talked about it in the Friday Night Critical Conversation show a little bit. That, you know, emotional needs is a broad bucket, okay? It could be but but it's it I'm trying to get across that what I, what I'm trying to communicate with that is that people are driven by their emotions to make the dis- major decisions. And minor decisions of their lives, for the most part, that's that's a that's a very you know non-controversial thing to say, when you know when it comes to how our decision-making processes work. Are um, without getting too much into all the technical details of it, which I don't even necessarily know myself as far as all the names and labels and all that stuff. The 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 concept here is that our brain is the center of thought. This is what's doing our thinking. Okay, this and the rest of our body, uh, you know, in terms of how the, the interactions of that, this is how we come to our decision making. But it's not just here. It's also the social factors, cultural factors, you know, the social hierarchies that we exist in. those also have an effect on how we think, what we think, what we accept as true, what our standard of evidence is. What we think is false, what we think is good, what we think is bad—all of these are in the mix. And what we don't have up here, and this is this is um, kind of hard to get, but for some people, but it's actually a very fine and very important point. This is not a truth detector. This is not a truth machine. We're not. We we don't have a a tendency or an or or a, an organic process that ferret's out truth. So what we accept as true is based on our education, language, culture, background, right? All these factors. It's not what is objectively true or even what can be proven with evidence to be shown as true or false. Those those are things we use to back up the decisions or ideas or things we've already accepted as true, and then we find the evidence or we find these various things, and we use them in arguments, and we use them in conversation and you know, in talking to one another. And that's kind of how this all plays out, is we are going through life trying to stay alive, trying to survive, trying to get make our way. And the, the, the function of the brain is to regulate the systems of the body primarily, but when it comes to thinking, it's about assessing environmental dangers and environmental advantages and leveraging those for your own personal and your social survival. So any information that fits in there that will go, that will go into those slots that you can think with and that makes sense to you That's pretty much the standard of evidence most people have, is does it make sense to me? Does it help me in my life? Does this forward forward my goals and agenda? Or does it not? Is this somehow counter to what I'm trying to do, counter to my survival? If so, that's bad. If it helps me, if it helps forward my survival, if it helps me, and this is all perception, mind you. This is not objective facts I'm talking about. I'm talking about from the point of view of the person. This is how they evaluate information. So um, it doesn't have to be true objectively or, f- or false, subject. I mean, it doesn't really—that's that, not the issue. That doesn't matter. It's can the person accept it? Does it meet their standard of evidence? And does it align with the things that they've already set up, the filters they've already created through growing up, learning a language, learning a culture, acclimating to that culture within their social hierarchy, right? All these factors— does it match up with all of those things? Does it check all the boxes it needs to check in order to be in agreement with all these things I've already accepted as true and which are already important in my life and which must continue to be true in order for my life to have emotional meaning and satisfaction? You see, that's kind of what the the, 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 the questions, the boxes that have to be checked in order for a piece of information to be accepted as true or not. So the the... The fact is that most of us don't stay alive for very long if most of what we're accepting is false. You know, you end up in a ditch. You end up doing something stupid. You end up winning a Darwin Award. And, and you know, and then you're dead. So, um, So for the most part, we seek objective truth because objective truth aligns with our survival for the most part. You know, you want to believe true things. You want to operate on uh, on factual information because that's what works. But when it comes to opinion, when it comes to things like, or things that are completely opinion-based, anything goes. Objective, re- ob- objective reality isn't a factor. Um, doesn't have to be. You know, when it comes to things like how should a society be organized, right? Uh, politics. Government, Um, religion, you know, these are big, big topics. We invest a lot of our thinking in both of those particular topics, but neither one of them is based on objective reality. They use objective reality to make points, make arguments, provide evidence of claims, but really it's all just kind of opinion. I think the country should be run this way. Well, I think the country should be run this way. Well, let's hash it out, right? And then you figure out how it's going to run. Where I'm going with all this is that there are there's a lot of our lives that are not necessarily based on objective reality or facts. They're based on opinions, and we treat these things as facts. We worship them sometimes too. You know, we get in, we get really into this stuff. So, um, so this is what establishes for ourselves our standards of evidence and what we're you know what we're willing to believe. So when it comes to the mask issue now, getting back to that specific topic. Um, You know, if you come from a culture or a background where personal liberty, uh, as defined by you, right, this idea that you can do anything you want, anytime you want, because that's you and that's how you should, that's how life should be. If that's the background and culture that you come from and everybody in your social circle agrees with that, then when somebody comes in and says, here's a regulation you have to follow for the safety of everybody, well, you and your cohorts are like, no, we don't think that that's true. I don't have to do that. And they'll refute it. They'll just push right back on it, just automatically. It doesn't even matter what the what the facts of the matter are. They just don't want to do it. And then they find all the reasons why they shouldn't have to do it or don't have to do it. It's, you know, it's it's economically disruptive. It's an invasion of my privacy. It's keeping me from, you know, uh, my family's survival. I can't go to work because of this pandemic. I have to stay home when lockdowns. This is directly and visibly, you know, like very noticeably cutting across my ability to produce income, provide for my family, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when those kind of factors are at play, it's not even that it's that crazy of thinking. You know, when you, I mean, some of these things are legitimate objections or legitimate concerns, I guess I could say. Um, None of them are valid reasons not to wear a mask. But you see, what I'm trying to make the point of is that, you know, trying to make money for your family, trying to go to work and produce an income and all that, that's legit. That's a real-world concern. It's not just somebody's, you know, airy-fairy imagination at work. So the push-pull of those factors in every single individual's life is going to determine for that person where they're going to fall on these questions. You know, some of them might not even be of the mind that masks are, you know, the, the tool of Satan or something, but their social circles are kind of of a mind of that. And, you know, and there's another factor here, which is hive mind, group mind, right? That the mob mentality tends to go lowest common denominator, tends to not think in, in, um, you know, very, it, it tends to be very primitive in its thinking. Let's put it that way. Um, groups, you know, mobs—they don't, they don't, they don't—they're uh, not known for their intellect <laughs> or or nuance. <laughs> so, um, so that's another layer of of factor, you know, peer pressure, social circles, etc. So, so there's a lot of factors at play here. So it's not just a matter for an individual. Maybe it should be in the best of all possible worlds, but it's not. But maybe it should be that you simply hear a piece of information or are given, you know, here's why the masks are important. Here's why you should wear them. Here's here's what to do with them. And you just go, yeah, that makes sense. Boom, boom. And off you go, right? But for some of these people, it doesn't make sense to them. Really, you know, if you get down to it, or it's somehow impinging or cutting across or or, or somehow making their life you know, perceived to be making their life so bad, so horrible, so awful, that they just couldn't even fathom doing something like that. Now, I'm not trying to say that all of the reasons these people are coming up with make sense to you. Make sense to them. doesn't have to make sense to you. It has to make sense to them. You know, and this is kind of where the interventionist mindset comes in, right? If you're going to intervene in somebody else's life to get them out of a cult, you're going to have to take on the responsibility that you are making major life decisions for that person. And you better know what you're doing and you better be sure that what you're doing is the right thing for them. In the case of a question about masks, there's really not a lot of question about that. We know the facts and evidence about that. And we know it's legit and people should be wearing masks. Point I'm trying to make is those guys don't agree with the same facts you do. So so it's not necessarily so much a matter of just cognitive dissonance as such, it's how the cognitive dissonance is resolved. And that's really what I've been talking about here this whole time is all these factors are what, you know, are, are the checklists or boxes that get used that, you know, you sort of check, check, check. Yes, I should wear a mask. No, I shouldn't wear a mask, But but but. And even if a person can't articulate these ideas, even if they struggle with the words or to explain themselves, what I'm talking about is what is going on in their heads. The thoughts don't have to be clear-cut, you know, logically sound arguments. <laughs> they don't have to be that for the person to agree that, you know, to accept them as true and, and use them as though they are legitimate arguments, okay? They don't have to make sense to you. They have to make sense to that person. So in dealing with people about this, my only piece of advice about it is that you have to take them where they're at. And you got to find out what the disagreement is, what the problem is, why is this an issue? Maybe it's a matter of Trump said so and that's all I need to hear. Okay, well, clearly then there's a whole nother situation there, right? Because if a person is willing to put their life at risk and the lives of everybody else at risk on the say-so of one person, then you know you've got somebody there who is well, obviously listening to somebody that shouldn't be listening to, yet they're all in on that person. What do we call that? Right? So there is that factor as well. Okay. All of these things are factors with this. So I hope all that makes sense. And I hope that I'm giving a complete answer. I'm not hope I'm not leaving anything out. But those are the things that come to mind when you ask me that. And I hope that sheds a little bit of light on what could be going on there. Steve Wood. A few weeks ago, you were speaking about the state of a mission or an org in Vancouver, Canada. You explained that it was totally in the wrong part of town. It was shockingly run down and poorly decorated. More often than not, the staff often did not get paid and any self-respecting person would probably not wish to be there, let alone go inside and study Scientology. I then heard you talk about the billions of dollars, yes, billions, that David Miscavige has access to. So my question is, why would he not use a fraction of that enormous wealth to fix this issue, which I have heard you mention time and time again about the state of some of these missions? Again, the cynic in me has a really simple answer, and that is Miscavige has no interest in the rank and file signing up for Scientology when he can rub shoulders with the powerful, rich, wealthy donors who, from what I believe, are almost entirely responsible for the continued wealth Scientology has amassed which is used to purchase real estate, albeit empty real estate. Okay, Steve, thank you for this question. And you are not wrong in your conclusion there. However, that's not all there is to the picture. Yes, David Miscavige couldn't give anything, couldn't care less about the general run-of-the-mill staff or the situations under which they labor. These guys have been working this way for decades, you know, since these orgs opened in the 60s, some even back in the 50s. And um, and 70s and 80s, et cetera. And um, and why should you start caring now? Right? He's got all that money. The money is there to keep Scientology going. It is there to pay legal fees. And by the way, those are pretty expensive, but it's not a billion dollars expensive. So what's this all about? Um, what's well, not all liquid, by the way, well, keep in mind that a, that a lot of that is also real estate value you know, valuation, too. So it's not necessarily like, you know, Miscavige just has pallets of money sitting around, although he probably could pop up a couple pallets if he wanted to. But beyond Miscavige's proclivities, there is a larger situation here. And this is a longer term situation that goes back to Hubbard. Uh, there's a couple factors here. First off, Elrond Hubbard wrote policies on exchange. Uh, he wrote those policies mainly to emphasize that orgs. Are supposed to be exchanging with their public, that they're supposed to be making money by delivering goods and services to those public. And they want happy, satisfied customers, right? Uh, well, fair enough. That's pretty much the formula for any business. But as we all know, businesses take advantage and all that. But with Scientology, that exchange factor is used as another mechanism of guilt-tripping the staff, okay? Just, you know, one of the things about Scientology is is so amazing and um, awful is the number of these control mechanisms or, you know, double binds and all this other stuff that enters in that controls people. And this is another one of the layers of control. You can use this factor of exchange to guilt trip the staff to work harder do more for less, back to them, and then guilt trip them about it even harder, right? But Elron, and and here's the here are the, the the beliefs that have to be in place in order for that to occur is you have to believe that Elron Hubbard knew exactly what he was doing, that he was a very successful administrator and manager, that he personally ran orgs and um you know organizations, uh, and that he ran them successfully. And um, some of those things are true, but not all of them. <laughs> so um, so you have to believe all of that, and then you have to believe that L. Ron Hubbard wrote down in all the policies for the church how he did it. These are the rules. This is the, these are the rules of the road. This is the map. This is the guideline to get you to St. Hill size, to this big, expansive, viable, productive organization. Well, no Scientology organization outside of maybe Clearwater is truly a viable organization capable of sustaining itself. You know, these orgs struggle along and they need to be bailed out all the time. Now, the whole ideal org strategy, remember, was to get the buildings purchased so that they wouldn't have to be bailed out all the time because of mortgage payments or rent payments. Because Scientology organizations have a very hard time producing a steady, predictable stream of income at the city level I'm talking about now, FLAG and the Sea Org organizations are kind of a different animal because they are um, delivering much more expensive services to much you know more people and, and are sort of uh, you know more near the top of the pyramid. These organizations I'm talking about are down near the bottom. They have to feed up, so they have to have enough inflow to feed the line up, but they themselves have never been the big booming operations. Um, and they and the way the guilt trip works, and this worked for me as a staff member, and this is why I'm, you know, I, I think I, I I can say this with some certainty, is that as a staff member, you believe that all this policy is true and real, and if you just follow it, the way L. Ron Hubbard says to, you will have a big, booming, prosperous organization. Ergo. If your organization is not big and booming and successful and viable, you guys aren't doing it right. It's on you. You staff members and the public in that field don't care enough. You're out ethics. You clearly are slacking off. You're not following policy. You're not doing what the old man says. That much is 100% taken for you know Hubbard's given truth, right? God given truth. Hubbard given truth. Um, successful organizations, prosperous organizations are organizations that follow L. Ron Hubbard's policies. So if you are not prosperous and successful, you're clearly not following L. Ron Hubbard's policies. And therefore you are out exchange, bringing back the call. Let's do the call back to exchange now. Therefore, your organization is out of exchange with management, with the C-Org with L. Ron Hubbard himself. I mean, if you guys can't be, you know, talking to the staff now, right? If this is, if I was Miscavige or Hubbard, if you guys can't get your shit together enough to even have an organization and keep it going and make some money and get the place, keep the doors open and keep the place going, then why would we invest more in you when you clearly show you, you guys don't know what you're doing? You can't follow the most simple of directions as laid out in L. Ron Hubbard's Voluminous Policies, right? There they are on the shelf. There's the books. Open them up. Start reading them. Start doing it. You can't help but succeed if you do. That's the party line. So so after hearing this over and over and over again, Scientology staff, of course, believe it. Uh, and they take that guilt on and they run it on themselves and they tell themselves that they are the ones They are the reason why this place isn't going. And if they just worked harder, if they were just more on source, if they were just, you know, a little bit more, then everything would be great. Everything would be wonderful. The place would turn around. People would come in, et cetera, et cetera. So this kind of mindset is operating at every org level. And and this is why the staff don't resent management for not. Um, giving them money or helping them out or getting them to help, you know. I mean, because also keep in mind, the Sea Org actually even gets to twist the knife because they send fundraisers down to the organizations to help them do their fundraising for their buildings, right? So the Sea Org is already bypassing the local executives and getting the fundraising done directly. What more do you want from us? We have to pay for it now too, You you see the attitude from the Sea Org is like, no, hell no. You know, you guys want a big, booming, ideal org. You got to put one here. It's on you guys. You're the one who took responsibility for this field. So get to it. We're here to help you out. We're not here to get the job done for you. If we have to do that, you're going to be in 10 times more trouble. Right? Taka taka. Let's go. And this is all built on, remember, the foundation. Make it go right. The supreme test of a Thetan. Is his ability to make things go right. So that at the end of the day, if you're not making the thing go, you're not passing the Supreme Test, you know, you're a bit of a failed Thetan. <laughs> your Thetan failed. <laughs> so, uh, so why again would we, you know, uh, support you with, you know, money and, t- and lavish all this attention on you, on your organization, and and pay all this money and subsidize you guys. You know, why, why would we do that, right? That's, the, that's sort of the position from management as perceived by the staff of the orgs. Okay, now the, now the middle management guys would actually love it if int reserves and, and Sea Org management could somehow get these orgs going and, and, and supplement their income or pay for these buildings. And in some cases, that has happened where Miscavige deemed it to be an important enough target that it had to get done. Uh, because of whatever strategy or you know sort of planning he was engaging in. So when he wants it done, it does get done. This has happened in Harlem, this has happened in Inglewood, this happened in Kaohsiung over in uh, I think oh, I think it's Taiwan. Um where they needed a sea org installation and a and a delivery space and so the sea org paid for it. So they have shown over and over again that they are perfectly capable of, of paying for or subsidizing these properties if they wanted to, but they just don't want to, right? Because they, it serves Miscavige's interest. Now let's get to the evil part, as, all of, as if all of that wasn't evil enough. It serves Miscavige's interests to keep the staff on this very short leash of desperation. They are the ones who are at fault. He doesn't want to change that situation because it keeps him in a power position and it keeps them afraid. It keeps them fearful. It keeps them cowardly. It keeps them at bay, right? And if you look at narcissism or Miscavige's brand of whatever it is you want to call him, um, there is a cravenness there. There is a cowardliness there. He is afraid of people. He is hiding David Miscavige is one of the biggest cowards on the planet. And I am happy to say that as many times as as you want to hear it. Um, So he's actually, I mean, deep down, he's afraid of these staff. He's afraid of the Sea Org. He's afraid of everybody because he knows his position is, you know, somewhat tenuous. At least that's how he sees it. And he knows he's getting attacked on all sides. Deservedly so. (laughs) But as he sees it. You know, the Martians are out to get him. Everybody's out to get him. And he has to be, you know, careful all the time, right? So it serves his interests as he sees it for all the Sea Org and all the staff to absolutely be terrified of him. And if they're not, something's wrong, right? If somebody's casual around David Miscavige, if somebody's chill around him, if somebody doesn't show him his due respect, they hear about it very quickly. David Miscavige enforces this respect, you know, yes, sir, yes, sir, how high, sir, right? He's all about that. So uh, so that's what he prefers. So if he were to start showing a kinder, or gentler side, you know, for real, manifesting it by action, not just words, Miscavige says all the right words, but his actions say something else right? And that's, on, that's the basis on which I judge him, because I've heard all his words. I heard all his words for decades. They were bullshit. You know, his actions are they are his actions. And with these staff and with these orgs, he doesn't care about them. It's obvious he doesn't. So, um, and he doesn't really particularly care about the cause. What he does care about is these staff being terrified of him, of the Sea Org, of the Sea Org being terrified of him, right of this of this hierarchy this 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 seniority of that being in place and he wants these people on a razor's edge and he wants them terrified and he wants them working he wants them working their guts out for pennies and this is how he gets it done everything i'm talking about here Right? and this is how he keeps it going, is he just keeps coming up with and throwing emergency-type situations, I- incredibly difficult problems, that he just keeps throwing down the line. They're not actually, normally speaking, a lot of these emergencies are internally created. The kind of stuff I was talking about have to do with personnel demands and shifts and transfers of people, or we need people for training for this or that, or we need these income targets met these quotas, and they better get met or else. These are the kind of things he throws down the line. These are not created external to Scientology, they're internally created. And the staff respond because this is what is called command intention. Right, what L. Ron Hubbard wants, what David Miscavige wants, that's what gets done. So uh, so I hope all of that kind of paints a bit of a picture. It's a grim picture for sure, but it's kind of the more complete picture than just David Miscavige, you know, kind of wants what he wants, or he wants to rub shoulders with rich people. David Miscavige could be rubbing shoulders with rich people, and could still pay his staff a living wage, and could still support these orgs and subsidize, or even just straight up pay for new buildings across the boards for all of them, and it wouldn't even really hit the church's pocketbooks. Um, you know, you know, you'd see it, but you wouldn't see it. It wouldn't. It's not like it would. Uh, disrupt David Miscavige's lifestyle in any way for him to do that. So good question to ask. Well, if that's the case, then how come he doesn't do it? It's because he doesn't want to. And in fact, feels like if he does, he'll lose. Pretty crazy, huh? Nick C, your work led me to learning about Steve Hassan's bite Model. For the benefit of the viewers who are not familiar with it, The BITE model is a list of several dozen practices that are typical of destructive cults. They are divided into four groups, those used to control behavior, information, thought, and emotions, hence BITE. I've been tempted to use the BITE model as a quantitative scorecard. Say a group that fits 30 criteria of the model is cultier than a group that fits 20. A group that fits only five is more likely than not to be benign. I've seen Owen at Telltale Atheist do something similar. Do you think this is a legitimate use of the model? If so, why so? If not, why not? Cool, Nick. Yeah, the Byte model is actually pretty good, and, um, and it can be used that way. And in fact, that's exactly as I'm being taught. That's kind of how models are used and kind of what they're there for is, is to be able to do a sort of analysis. Now, the stressors with this, the thing that we always have to sort of put out there are that... Context matters in every single point you're looking at, and and, and it's not a rote thing, right? There is no formula for plug in these numbers and, oh, yeah, got a call. It's not quite like that. There's always a judgment factor. There's always context that can be applied because you could have—I could make a case right now. I could easily just write down a checklist and check off all the boxes to convince you guys that a Catholic monastery or a Buddhist monastery, um, you know, we're up in the mountains or something, isolated from the rest of the world, um, you know, sl- you know, very very difficult, rigorous physical labor and conditions that the monks go through, etc. I could easily make the case that that is a destructive cult. Uh, it's not. But I could make the case that it is, right? Because it's there's a lot of similarities, and taken a little out of context. You can turn that into a really negative situation very, very quickly. Fact of the matter is that Catholic monasteries do everything they can to convince a person not to join before they do, you know. And that automatically, you know, it gives uh, it puts their informed consent and a number of other factors. But if we just sort of ignored that or sort of pushed that to the side, right? Then you know, all the control mechanisms line up, and the rigorous lifestyle and even abusive uh, physical conditions, et cetera. So context always always matters. And I just I, 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 I don't imagine, Nick that you're, that you're not familiar with this, but I'm trying to make the case here that these models are not simple Simon. You, you have to understand them. You have to understand all of the, all of the different parts of them and why they were put together the way that they were. Otherwise, you end up being a bit rote. And you can make mistakes, and you can misassess, and we don't want any of that. So it's only with those caveats that I'll say, absolutely, that's what the model is for. And you can do a quantitative type analysis like that—you know, assign some numbers, lay it out that way, if you want to—and nothing wrong with that. I'm—I'm I'm pretty sure that's how Hassan meant it to be used, or one of the ways you know that, that he meant it to be used in order to judge and assess a, a group. So with all those caveats. There you go. Cyprian Ivanov, does the hyperbolic optimism about the limits of human achievement create the need for scapegoats to explain when predictions don't turn out as hoped? Okay, so in a cult context, of course, because I believe that's how you're asking me this, I think what you're asking me is basically you have these groups that have this amazing optimism, this hyperbolic optimism you refer to, that we can do anything, you know, the supreme test of a the and make it go right. No matter what context, under what conditions, we don't care, make it go right, right? This, that's a pretty optimistic point of view to have about whether somebody who has no training, no background, no experience whatsoever with something can actually figure it out, make it work, and produce products anyway, right? That's the Sea Org attitude. And you know, and there is something to be said about picking yourself up by your bootstraps and, and demanding more of yourself or of others than they could possibly deliver on. You know, if, if done in a positive way, it can be incredibly empowering. Um, but, you know, so, so again, I think what you're asking me here is does that create the need for scapegoats if things don't work out? Yes. But I would say it's, it, I would say that what you are really talking about here is we need some kind of explanation. We need some reason. And generally speaking, when you have these hyperbolic optimism, as you say, right, when you have these like ideas that are, you know, sun, moon, and stars, and rainbows, and unicorns and stuff, and everything is all just so wonderful in this wonderful of all possible worlds, then if things don't work out that way you know, then you're going to be pretty upset and you're going to be, you know, you're going to need to know why, because you want to fix it. Because, you know, that view, of course, is that things can be controlled and and things should be able to work. So, So if they didn't work, well, we got to figure out why. And so there has to be somebody in the destructive cults. It's a matter of somebody almost universally. It doesn't have to necessarily be somebody inside the group. But it's a, it's, a, it's a benefit for the cult leader, if it is, because they then can run guilt and shame as an additional factor of control on the members. So that's kind of where some of that comes from. Um, then there's also just the fact, as I was mentioning in an earlier question, that every single individual person you ever meet from here on out and, and have ever met in your past, they need the world to make sense to them and half the struggle of your life is trying to make the world make sense. And scapegoats help with that because then it then then it eschews, you know then you're out of any of any responsibility. You're off the hook. It's their fault. <laughs> right? So you don't have to take the blame, you don't have to take the hit. And isn't that convenient? Right? Isn't that special? <laughs> so <laughs> So um, so it is a fairly natural proclivity on the part of human beings, I think, that we would look outside of ourselves for blame first. Um, but of course, you have personality types that, that are int- more introspective and will blame inwards. And those types, of course, in a cult milieu, in a cult situation, will readily accept all of the blame and responsibility because they're already running that on themselves. So you get to, you know, you get both types. And... Uh, you know, you get to blame everybody else and you get to no, I'm always to blame. And, you know, uh, depending on which one you have in the mix, it'll depend on how it goes about happening. But will there be scapegoats? Oh, yes, there will definitely be scapegoats. Now, the other thing that happens, though, and worth commenting on because it's coming to mind here, is the Heaven's Gate, um, you know, the, the the way cognitive dissonance was discovered in the first place. Uh, had to do with not Heaven's Gate, but another cult similar is Doomsday Cult. And the the day of damnation and doom and gloom came and went, and there was no doom and gloom. The world continued. Why? Well, rather than scapegoat people, another alternative logical fallacy you can offer instead is our group was so—even though it didn't come, the reason it didn't come, the reason the disaster didn't happen is because our group was so vigorous— so active, so effective at what we were doing to stop it from happening that we actually prevented it. Or more, historically speaking, what's tended to happen more is not that we put a stop to it forever, we delayed it. We put it off. And then the group is actually taking credit for the success, quote unquote, of having stopped that disaster from occurring. Um, when the prediction didn't turn out as hoped, you see. So so you have that reaction can happen as well. And perhaps there are other you know things that have happened too that I'm not thinking about right now, but those uh, I thought were worth commenting on. So thanks for the question. Dusty Bills, I was wondering if you have looked into the Stanford Prison Experiment, and if so, what do you think about it? Hey, thanks, Dusty. We've actually studied the Stanford Prison Experiment as part of our curriculum on the university study that I'm doing, and... I think we'll probably be looking at it some more, too. But we kind of got a little into it. And I watched some video from the actual experiment, listened to, um, oh, God, Zimbardo, right, the guy who actually ran the thing, uh, watched an interview with him. He talked about, you know, when they were conducting the experiment, how his own girlfriend was the one who had to insist to him that they stop it because he was, you know, kind of so caught up in the interesting fascination of this train wreck that was going on. And if you don't know the Stanford Prison Experiment, I'm not going to break the whole thing down here for you. It's just, it was a psychological experiment in the 60s that went way out of control and ended up being shut down, I think, after six days. It was planned to run for two weeks. Um, Summary, uh, okay, I will explain it. The summary idea is that there were uh, a group of college students in the basement, I think at Yale, and half of, or no, so Stanford, and half of them were made prisoners, half of them were made guards. And by assigning that personality, that, that identification, that job, so to speak, or, or role, maybe more exactly, better word, um, to each of those, to, the, to these two groups of people, they then started immediately looking at the world through that lens, right? The prisoners were locked up, the guards were told, you're the guards, they need to follow what you're saying, et cetera. And, um, and you know, shenanigans ensued. Uh, there was, you know, there was some abusive behavior. There were things getting kind of off the rails. There were people. Uh, there was one guy in particular who appeared to be having a mild psychotic episode of some kind. I mean, it was it was pretty bad. Uh, things got pretty. The emotions ran pretty damn high on that thing, and uh, and so they ended up shutting it down. And and such an experiment would never, ever get ethical. Okay, now no one in any university in the world, I don't think, would uh, would authorize okay in such an experiment at this point um so you know what do I think about it I think it was informative I am not you know there is controversy connected with it there is this idea that Zimbardo or uh, his assistant had briefed one of the guards in detail about how to act it wasn't a fully organic process I th- I think that's a little bit of a coin toss I think that if you if you look into the details of that it's you know, Zimbardo says no. That's not what we did at all, and uh, I tend to believe him. But I do see how you know that conversation could have been, um, you know, could have could have messed with us or manipulated the 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 outcome a little bit. But given the entire picture of what happened and the reactions of everybody involved, I don't think one conversation with one guard was that uh, that much of a. of a a bias-creating situation that it it throws, you know, all the results of the experiment out the window. You know, this is why people have been studying it for decades, is because it's incredibly informative as to how people act under certain situations, given stress, but more importantly, given a role, and then taking that role on, taking it seriously, and then acting accordingly. Um, you know, there's, a, there's this um, self-identification theory or self-categorization theory, I should say, and this has a lot to do with that. And it just so happens that I'm a pretty firm believer in, in self-categorization theory. And I think that Stanford Prison Experiment is, offers us a look at, you know, an extreme situation where some of the, you know, more obvious and, and interesting and extreme examples of how that theory works Played out, and I and that's that's pretty interesting stuff because if you if it's true and if that is one of the big factors to why people behave the way they do is because of how they see themselves, what role they see themselves in in a given situation, what is and isn't appropriate, how you know, and then they adjust their not only their behavior but literally how they see the world according to those roles. That's 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 pretty heady stuff that's, that's some that's some pretty important stuff there and um, and I think that Stanford prison experiment you know uh, gives some gives some credibility to that whole concept um, the cult milieu and what we talk about with cults also does there's a lot to self- categorization theory it's it's pretty interesting stuff so um, anyway so that's kind of what I was my thoughts on the on the subject yeah um, If you have anything more specific about it you want to know know from me, then uh, just let me know. Let's do some flash answers. Rob K., when you were in Minnesota, was the Church of Scientology in their current location, the old Science Museum building? Seems like a nice building, and as I recall from the museum days, it's pretty big. How many people work there, staff, and about how many Scientologists are there actually in the Twin Cities area? It seems like a waste of space. Thanks for the question, Rob. When I left Twin Cities, I had a spreadsheet of exact names of active Scientologists in the Twin Cities area. That list was 113 names long. If I remember right, there were about 50 staff between the day and the foundation organizations. Day is Monday through Friday, nine to, 9 to six. The foundation organizations is Monday through Friday, six to 10. And Saturday and Sunday, 9 to 6. So you have two crews operating in the same building, different hours. So I think it was about 50 people or so. I'm told it has has shrunk since then. Um, In the entire five-state area surrounding Minnesota, going out towards Chicago, going out to the Dakotas, going down, um, you have um, a total list from the Scientology Central Files The international address list, about 900 names for that whole region that have ever bought a book, done anything with Scientology in that area that we still know of, who aren't dead, who haven't asked off the list or threatened legal or anything like that. That was the list we were working on. And after we worked that list, we crossed off so many names. 900 was actually an exaggeration. So, uh, tiny, tiny field right? Statistically, practically insignificant in the area, to be honest. R.R. Smith, do you think that David Miscavige is a psychopath without the promiscuous sexual behavior? And could that be because Hubbard and the Sea Org basically raised him? Well, I'm not sure if you mean to say with this that all psychopaths somehow have a sexual component, but they don't. You can be a psychopath and be celibate. It's it's not really particularly a, a matter of psychopathy in terms of your sexual drives, as I understand it. I also understand psychopaths a pretty broad term. So, um, you know, does maybe David Miscavige fit that uh, aspects of his behavior sure do. You know, I would love an opportunity to get in that guy's head for real. I mean, a lot of the things that I say and other people say about Miscavige really is conjectural because we're not in his head. Right? He could have lots of different reasons for the things that he does. All of them, you know, not particularly legit reasons, of course, mind you. But it could be, it would be fascinating to really get, you know, uh, some kind of psychotherapeutic workup on that guy. Anyway, um, I, you know, so I don't know, you know, is basically what I'm trying to go with that. But I have called him a psychopath in the past, as have many others. I've also used narcissist, malignant narcissist, sociopath. There's a lot of words you can use for that guy. Class A jerk fits. <laughs> so there you go. Laurent Soclair. What is the best way for us to listen to your podcasts? I was used to watching them on YouTube, but these days I enjoy listening to them on Google Podcasts. Am I actually harming your stats for future sponsorships or for ad revenue by doing so? Well, maybe a little bit in terms of YouTube, uh, you know, uh, linking my video out there or referring people to my videos. Um, You know, I put it out on video so people have something to watch and film it, you know, film the interviews and stuff. So you could do that here, and of course you can listen to it with YouTube, or of course it is a podcast, and I've put it out there. I put Critical Q&A out as a podcast every week, and I put the Sensibly Speaking podcast out there as a podcast every week. They're, they're both available for subscription on multiple platforms, and um, and it would be a bit much for me to put them out there and then say, don't listen to them, right? I want the information shared however it gets done. But if you don't watch the YouTube videos, the YouTube algorithms are not seeing views from other places. So, you know, um, so at the end of the day, I'm going to tell you that I have absolutely zero guilt trip in your direction for however you want to consume my content. I don't care. Just please consume it and then share it with other people. That to me is the most important part. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home and letting me talk at you for a while. I hope my answers were illuminating, educational, informative, and maybe maybe possibly mildly entertaining. Um, if so, consider joining this show on Patreon. I could really use the help. In fact, now more than ever, um, the economy is taking a hit, and so is my Patreon channel uh, or support line and um sorry just being real that's how it is so if you all have the um you know possibility of even a dollar okay I mean, I mean really bunch of people doing that it helps it really does so i'm not saying anybody has to go like crazy balls or you know hit the 100 dollar tier or something like that whatever you can do is helpful thanks guys talk to you next week bye bye